0: Go on. Children can be dismissed for their children's church now. If you would please turn with me in your Bibles to uh, Luke chapter 16. We're going to be reading about the parable of the shrewd manager, verses 1 through 13. Lord, we just ask that as we look into your word that the Holy Spirit would speak to each of us in each of the ways that we need it. Name we pray. Amen. Follow along with me, please. Uh, Luke chapter 16, verses 1 through 13. Jesus told his disciples there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wa- wasting his possessions. So he called him in and asked him, What is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be a manager any longer. The manager said to himself, what shall I do now? My master is taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. I know what I'll do, so that when I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. So he called in each of his master's debtors. He asked the first, how much do you owe my master? 800 gallons of olive oil, he replied. The manager told him, take your bill, sit down, Sit down quickly and make it 400 Then he asked a second, and how much do you owe? A thousand bushels of wheat, he replied. He told them, take your bill and make it 800 And the master commended dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. For the people of this world are more shrewd in dealing with their own kind and with the people of light. I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourself so that when it is gone, you will welcome into eternal dwellings. Whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with very much. And whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth. Who will trust you with the true riches? And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? No servant can serve two masters. Either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve both God and money. Thank you for this word.
1: Thank you, Cliff. Join me in prayer again as we look at this passage here in Luke 16. Begin by looking to the Lord to direct and guide us. Lord, we thank you again for your precious words. The psalmist declared the word of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. May it revive us this morning. May it make us wise. May it bring joy to our hearts. May it direct us in our thinking. May you have your way in our lives as we look at this passage this morning. Give us understanding. Give us the application to our lives. May it truly be a mirror to the soul. And as we look at it, we would gaze intently into it, allowing it to change us. Thank you for the Spirit of God who enables us to make those changes, who gives us the understanding, who guides us into all truth. Have you way in us this morning once again, I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I heard about some thieves in Liverpool, England, who stole a car from outside someone's house. A few days later, they returned the car to the same spot, all nicely washed and cleaned. On the dashboard was this little note that said, thank you for the use of your car. Why don't you and your wife go to the theater? Please use the tickets and closed. And sure enough, there were two tickets next to the note to attend a production of, at the theater at such and such a date. And while the couple was gone to the theater, they robbed their house. (laughs) Now, that's pretty good. I mean, it's wrong. It's dishonest. But in terms of resourcefulness and cleverness, it's quite good. We come to a passage of Scripture this morning that's a little perplexing. But as the case with the thieves in Liverpool, a manager, though dishonest, in his work ethic, can at least be said to be resourceful and ingenious. The parable is often entitled the unjust steward. I would prefer to call it the shrewd dude. It just works for me. Now let me say a couple of things about parables in general that certainly apply here as well. The word parable simply means to place alongside. It is a story that is placed alongside a principle to illustrate a truth. It's done for the same purpose as I might use an illustration. An illustration is not intended, nor is a parable, to walk on all fours. I mean, do you know what I mean by that? Preachers and and teachers begin to get off course when attempting to press each detail of a parable to a certain meaning. I mean, it preaches. People do tend leaving saying, Wow, never saw that before. That was deep. Well, perhaps no one ever saw it before because it isn't there. <laughs> let's use our minds on that. It may sound good uncovering meanings for this and that, but G- if Jesus in his explanation of the parable doesn't tell us, then let's be careful not to press the details. So beware. Of anyone providing for you some secret explanation or more to the story. No matter how beautifully packaged it is. We get way off track on parables. And so this morning, as we look at uh, the parable before us in Luke chapter 16, Jesus has a point he wants to make and he illustrates that point with a story, with a parable. that comes alongside of the truth. It's a story about our attitude toward money and possessions. Interestingly, Jesus gave us just shy of 40 parables. And one out of three deal with money in some way. Not surprising, really, when we stop and and realize that that much of uh, uh, how much money is on our minds throughout the week. Statistics tell us that we spend more of our waking time thinking about money than anything else. We think about how to acquire it and and save it and spend it and invest it and borrow it and, and count it. It's been noted that if you are 85 years old here in this room, that you have spent nearly 50 years, 50 years of your waking time thinking about money. Wow! Well, since it's on our minds anyway, Jesus challenges us to think rightly about it. Now, I remind you of the thread that runs through this sermon series for this month. It's found in the one word, trust. Hopefully, you've been working through the stewardship journals. You still can pick one up and work through it from this point forward, or catch up, do whatever you want with it, but use it uh, to, to help you know, just you know, revive you and, and work out the scriptures on the whole subject of money and possessions. But the one word that we're building all of this series on is the word trust. We hold everything in trust, which is absolutely foundational for our understanding of stewardship. It begins and it ends right there. We asked last week, do I trust God with all my stuff? This morning we ask, can God trust me? And Jesus, the master storyteller, often filled his stories with some shocking things. He does that in today's story. Well, let's dig into Luke chapter 16. Jesus is speaking to his disciples, verse 1 tells us, while others are listening in. And there are good lessons to be found from bad books. And before we look at the good lessons, let's look at the bad books of one manager of a large business. Follow along as I read Luke chapter 16, verse 1. Follow along. Jesus told his disciples, there was a rich man whose manager was accused of wasting possessions. Now, the manager, you need to realize, was given the responsibility to act on behalf of the absentee landowner. He would be hired for such a a position because he would be considered trustworthy. He was trusted with the full operation of the the agricultural business. And, And this hired steward managed all the land, all the crops, all the owner's assets. And the owner is a rich man, as is the manager who is doing business with some very wealthy people. And apparently, someone blew the whistle on this manager who was wasting the owner's possessions. And this accusation here has a tone of hostility to it, but it's an accusation that sticks. The word for wasting there is, or squandering is the same word used for the prodigal son who threw away all his money and loose living in Luke chapter 15. Same word. This manager is totally irresponsible and throwing the owner's money away. This manager is in a way too important position to be irresponsible. And so the owner doesn't waste any time, and he calls in the manager for a meeting. It's a very brief meeting, as you'll see. Kind of like in, in Donald Trump fashion, he says, you're fired. That's it. He fires him on the spot. He says to the manager, verse two, what is this I hear about you? Give an account of your management because you cannot be manager any longer. Now, this accounting that is required of him is not to keep his job, for that's already a done deal. It's for the purpose of pulling together a final report. Now, I have to wonder, I have to wonder why the owner uh, gives this irresponsible manager a little bit more time. I mean, if you're going to fire someone for mismanagement of your money, why would you give him any more time to do any more damage? I mean, it's like, clean your desk, get out of here, don't let the door, door hit you on the way out. You're done. Why allow this manager to hang around for another minute? Well, the manager realizes that he's in trouble. He has no job and perhaps no home either, since it is likely that he lived there on the owner's property. His future doesn't look very promising, since he was fired for being irresponsible. That's not going to look too good on a resume. Reason for leaving, last job. Fired for wasting employers' money. It's going to be hard to get a job. And in verse 3, the manager says, what shall I do now? My master's taking away my job. I'm not strong enough to dig, and I'm ashamed to beg. Now, there would have been plenty of jobs available if he wanted them, but they would require manual labor. And he was a white-collar kind of guy. And digging for a living, well, maybe he felt that was a little beneath him. And so this fired manager is in a desperate situation. And he has this epiphany, an, an eureka moment. It's spelled out in verses 4 through 7. It was read earlier. This is what happens. He contacts all the people who are in debt to the owner. These debts are outstanding and awaiting payment at harvest time. And he goes to each debtor one by one, and he strikes a deal to discount their debt big time. This man is looking out for number one only. He's most concerned about himself. Word was not out yet that he was fired. And so these debtors can only assume that the manager is acting on behalf of the owner. And one guy owes 800 gallons of olive oil, and it's reduced to half of that amount as it's now 400 gallons. This this renegotiating is done quickly. Verse 6 says, it's one of those quick, sign here. <laughs> See, con artists are always in a hurry. It's a quick one. Why wouldn't the debtor agree to this, though? It, it, it cuts the debt in half. He strikes a deal with the second guy, our text tells us, and reducing that amount 20%. Now, I have to believe and this is guessing here, I have to believe that this manager does the same thing with each and every guy who has a debt, and that these two are just examples of a long list of debtors. But whether this money is money out of his own commission or he's robbing the owner of some money, we can only guess, but either way, it is an ingenious plan. What made this plan, this move so brilliant? Well, Jesus informs us of the man's motivation in verse 4. Verse 4. When I lose my job here, people will welcome me into their houses. Hang on to that. We're going to revisit that in a moment. But the man's life is about to change. He's going to need some friends. And, and, and in Jewish culture... Reciprocation was huge. It was a, uh, I'll scratch your back, you scratch my back mentality. I help you, now you owe me. That's how it works. So he's lining this up for his sake. We then come to the shocking statement in verse 8. It says, verse 8, the master commended the dishonest manager because he had acted shrewdly. Now, if he commended him for the dishonesty, then we're going to have a real problem. We would then walk away thinking, well, the ends must justify the means. But he commends him for what? Acting shrewdly. The owner has to kind of sit back in his chair and go, you got me on this one. (laughs) Pretty clever. You're a shrewd dude. The entrepreneurial owner appreciates resourcefulness. If nothing else, the owner knows an opportunist when he sees one. And as we're going to see in a moment, Jesus places this parable alongside of a principle that's about a dishonest manager. And and some people feel the need to help Jesus out. I don't know why we ever feel that need. But some people feel the need to help Jesus out and protect him from using a dishonest man to make a good lesson. And we have all kinds of interpretations. Some are so far-fetched, I'm not going to waste my time talking to you about them. But the point is, we can't read into the story in order to pull put this man in a different light. He is a conniving, dishonest, irresponsible manager. He is. He's not being commended for being that, or for being irresponsible or dishonest, but for acting shrewdly. The word shrewd means acting advantageously. Acting advantageously. He worked the situation in such a way that it put him in a good position for a secure future. The man was thinking ahead for his own needs to be met. It's the same message that drives most people today. Take care of your future. It's pounded into us. Work, work, work. Save, save, save. Send it forward to when you are 65 or 70. Then you can kick back and enjoy life. How's that working out? I mean, can it really deliver on what it promises when you finally get there? Kind of reminds me of a nursing home in Florida of a resident group that was discussing the great ailments in their lives. And one said, well, my arms are so weak, I can hardly lift this cup of coffee. Well, my cataracts are so bad, I can't even see my coffee. Well, yeah, another resident chimed in. Well, I can't even turn my neck because of the arthritis in my neck. Yeah, well, my blood pressure pills make me very dizzy. I can't even walk and see half the time. Well, I guess that's the price we pay for getting old, another person said. And everyone agreed, except one woman who said, well, it's not that bad. Thank God we can all still drive. (laughs) Now, think about that. Yeah, a little scary, isn't it? Now now I'm not mocking retirements or elderly please hear that but this is a cultural concept this retirement thing that Americans have bought into and find that to only take care of your future for yourself and that all of life is about that pot of gold at the end of the rainbow come to the ripe old age only to discover it's an illusion Yet the people of this world are living for that. They're building for that. And they'll use every kind of scheme, ploy, ingenuity imaginable to make sure they have a future. That's the point. The people of this world are experts at gaining opportunities for themselves. And that brings us to our application. Good lessons from bad books. It's a surprise ending. The people of this world, Jesus says, at the end of verse 8. The people of this world, Jesus says, are more shrewd and dealing with their own kind than are the people of the lights. It's a lesson from the lesser to the greater, which was a common method of teaching used in that day. If a worldly evil dishonest managers, shrewd in the use of money that he has access to. How about us who know the Lord? Why is it that sinners are more shrewd than saints? Now, we kind of need to take a step back from the story, like standing back from a magnificent painting to see what we miss up close. So take a step back with me so we can grab the lessons. There are two. Probably more than that, but there are two. First is, be winsome with God's resources. That's lesson number one. Be winsome with God's resources. Verse nine, Jesus says, I tell you, use worldly wealth to gain friends for yourselves so that when it is gone, you will be welcomed into eternal dwellings. Now, he's not saying by this, buy your friends or buy your kids' love. He's not suggesting we manipulate others for the making of friends so that we can get what we want. This isn't a money talks kind of lesson. Jesus is talking about eternity. Believer, when you pass from this life to the next, there's going to be one big reunion with loved ones. And that will be something. But do you realize that there will also be those waiting on heaven's edge to greet you with a beer hug? Sorry, non-huggers. <laughs> He will embrace you. They will embrace you because of your dollars given to some ministry or missionary that reached their soul for Jesus Christ. There will be people you have never met before who had some casual relationship with, or perhaps you invested in knowingly that will welcome you with gratitude in their hearts for that investment. They will say, thank you. I am here because of that. There will be people there. The question is what kind of welcoming committee are you going to have when you get on the other side? You know the Lord? You're going to heaven. All who are trusting in Jesus as their savior will go to heaven, but not all will have the same welcome committee. Are you building friendships by using all that you have that will last eternity? Am I? If a conniving crafty, self-centered, shrewd guy does what he needs to do with the resources he has available to him to make his own life a little bit easier later on in life, then how much more should we who have an eternal future use our resources to plan for that? Be winsome with God's resources. Be shrewd. Be shrewd. The world's doing it. I read of a man, Andrew Fisher, who shrewdly auctioned off the empty space on his forehead huh, to the highest bidder on eBay. Now, how much he got? Over thirty-seven thousand dollars for someone to put an advertisement engraved on his forehead. Now, I'm not suggesting go get something engraved, John three sixteen, on your forehead. That's not what I'm saying. But they're shrewd. He found a way to make some money for himself, and frankly. This world does circles around us in the area of shrewdness, ingenuity, and creativity. Now, admittedly, this is a pet peeve of mine, so take this for what it's worth. But Christian books and some writings and Christian songs and strategies lack often so much creativity. The world draws up these clever strategies business developing genius plans for reaching the globe with their product line, and the arts and media pull out all the stops with their creativity, all for what? Dealing with their own kind and securing a better future on this earth for themselves. The church's strategy for outreach and, and ministry plans and gathered worship simply takes what others are doing and mimics it off half the time. Now, I understand Before you throw darts at me, I understand the principle of not reinventing the wheel, and I'm not for a minute suggesting that we must dazzle and entertain for success. But really, we should be the most ingenious, creative group around. We serve an unlimited God drawing upon his unlimited resources, and yet we do the same thing, different verse, and wonder why the unbelieving world is not interested and our Christian kids are bored with it all. Someone wrote this. says, you can live on bland food so as to avoid an ulcer. You can drink no tea or coffee or other stimulants in the name of health. You can go to bed early and stay away from nightlife. You can avoid all the controversial subjects so as never to give offense. You can mind your own business and avoid involvement in other people's problems. You can spend money only on necessities and save all you can. Yet you still can break your neck in the bathtub. (laughs) It's true. See, we've developed an, an ethic of avoidance rather than an ethic of involvement. Jesus says it plainly. Do this. Take your resources. Make friends with them. Be shrewd. Be shrewd. And connecting with others. Be shrewd. I don't know what that means for you. It may mean that you're preparing a meal before you head off for church. So that when you get to church, you can say, come on over today for lunch. Because I have a meal already prepared. I don't know. Be shrewd. And how we connect with us. How we serve in the church. How we reach out to the lost. Be opportunistic. What are we doing with our resources? We have lots of them. For the future that lasts forever, how many opportunities do we miss? What are we investing in? Invest in people, invest in the gospel, make friends for eternity. I mean, did God give us the abilities we have just for the now? Just so we can get a paycheck? Just so we can retire someday? Brothers and sisters in Christ, let's get shrewd for Jesus' sake, for the kingdom's sake. Be winsome with God's resources. Work that. The second lesson, I need you to, too. the second lesson is behave responsibly with God's resource resources. Not only be winsome with God's resources, behave responsibly with God's resources. Behave responsibly. Follow along as I read verses 10 through 12 here. Yeah, it's going to make you squirm a bit. It did to me. Verse 10, whoever can be trusted with very little can also be trusted with much. Whoever is dishonest with very little will also be dishonest with much. So if you have not been trustworthy in handling worldly wealth, who will trust you with true riches? Verse 12. And if you have not been trustworthy with someone else's property, who will give you property of your own? What is Jesus saying here? Well, what determines our faithfulness? Not circumstances. Not amounts. It's about your character. It's about your integrity. It's about where you're investing. If your desire is to invest in eternity, you will do it. If you don't desire that, you won't. No change in circumstances or amount would alter that one bit. I read of an ambitious young man who told his pastor that he promised to give God a tithe of his income. And so they said, well, let's pray together and ask God to bless your career. At that time, he was making a very small amount of money. In a few years, his income increased greatly, and so did the amount of his tithe. He didn't like that so much, so he visited the pastor again to see if he could be released from his tithing promise because it was just too costly for him now that his income had increased. The pastor replied, I'll tell you what. Let's pray and ask God to reduce your income to where it was when you first made that promise, and then you'd have no problem tithing again. Okay. God can take care of that, can't he? We want to step up. All right, I have a plan. I'll reduce. He can do that. Some say if I had a million dollars, I would give to this and to that. No, you wouldn't unless you already are practicing practicing faithfulness in the little amounts. Verse 10 says we do need to sweat the small stuff. Some people want to skip past the little things in life and get on with the big things. But if you aren't faithful in little tasks and little responsibilities and little money and resources, you will not be faithful when given more uh, important responsibilities and more resources and more money. You won't. Who are you right now? If You're self-indulgent in a little? Guess what? You'll be self-indulgent in, in a lot. Teens, if you struggle with faithfulness, and following through or figure it isn't any big deal and blowing off what you said you would do, or you can't be trusted and carrying out that little responsibility, don't think that all of a sudden when you land that big job or you get that huge break that you will instantly be faithful. You won't. How you handle even the small things reveals our character. Can God trust me? Can God trust you? Are we behaving responsibly with God's resources? Are we being winsome with God's resources? Why? Why? Why are we to give generously, give away our resources so we can get back something now? Is that what Jesus puts out there? Scripture may speak to that other places, but right here, he speaks of the investment you're making for all of eternity in people's lives. He speaks of eternal dwellings. He mentions true riches. He mentions property of your own. When's that going to happen? In this life? No. He's speaking to the life to come. Everything in this passage here is about the then. This is what it all boils down to right here. Living now in light of then. Living now in light of then. With all our resources, our abilities, everything. Living now. In light of that. And quite truthfully. This is one of the reasons for the stagnation. And immaturity in the contemporary evangelical church. We are living in the now. We want heaven now. We want healing now. We want it fixed now. We want happiness now. We want it easy now. We want everything now. And Jesus is challenging us with the then. Living now in light of then. Living this day for that day, as Martin Luther used to say. It's the prospect of glory that invites us to permanently realign our priorities. Loved ones, what would it look like? What would it look like for us as a church if the then really invaded our now? What changes would we need to make in terms of the use of our resources for the blessings of others and the investing in friendships for eternity? Because if we are to have greater impact, we need to be thinking about then. We can't serve all our stuff in the now and serve God for the then at the same time. That's what Jesus concludes here in the lesson to the disciples and to us. Verse 13. No servant can serve two masters. He'll either hate the one, love the other. He'll be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot underline, circle, do whatever you need to do with that word. You cannot serve both God and money or mammon, possessions, stuff. Money here, all our stuff is personified as a boss. Now, it isn't that it's difficult to serve God in our possessions. No, it is impossible. That's what he's saying. It isn't that we're just going to be frustrated or or we're going to be confused with two masters. He says, no, we can't do it. Serving two bosses is like trying to walk in two different directions at the same time. It can't be done. Now, you may not like sermons like this. I didn't particularly care for it at the beginning of the week either. Perhaps you're even getting a little angry over hearing this message this morning. But if we are truly serving God, we won't be intimidated by these kind of passages. Instead, we're going to get real excited. We're going to allow eternity to break into our now. As as one southern preacher put it, let's do our giving while we're living because we're knowing where it's going. Yes! Yes! What are we going to find when we cross the finish line? What are we going to find? Two Kentucky farmers owned racing stables, and over time they developed a strong rivalry between them. One spring, each of them entered a horse in a local steeplechase. Thinking that a professional rider might help him outdo the other, one of the farmers hired an extremely proficient jockey While the two horses were neck to neck with a large lead over the rest of the pack at the last turn, but suddenly both horses fell, unseating their riders. The professional jockey remounted quickly and rode on to win the race. Returning triumphantly to the paddock, the jockey noticed that the farmer who hired him was fuming with anger. What's the matter, the jockey asked. I won, didn't I? Oh yeah, roared the farmer. You won all right but you crossed the finish line on the wrong horse. (laughs) And we may be figuring we're running a pretty good race. We may want to pause and check now and then to make sure we're on the correct horse. Are we riding the horse marked American dream? Are we riding the horse marked uh, uh, trivial pursuits or wasted opportunities? Loved one, we've been given a lot, a lot. Can God trust me with it? Can God trust you with it? Can he trust us with all that he's given us? Let's pray. Lord, these are sobering words here. And just as was your intention, shocks us. It grabs us. Causes us to stop and think. That's what you did with your stories. Thank you for this parable. For it reminds us of the resources that we've been given and what we're doing with them. God, may we be able to say, yes, you can trust me. Even little things that we as individuals, as families, as a church, that we're using our resources to make friends for all of eternity. Help us to know what it means to be shrewd, wise as serpents, harmless as doves. Teach us. Help us that it's you, you are our vision and only you. You are first in our thoughts, that it's all about you, that we have our eyes on you as our master keep checking in with you and say, Master, what do you want me to do with this that I hold in my hands? Show us. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen. As we close, turn your hymn books to hymn number